Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 14, Leviticus chapter 11. We ended last time, we met with the proposition that to understand the Hebrew dietary laws given to them by Yehovah at Mount Sinai, that we must understand that in doing so, God placed diet direct, directly at the center of holiness and purity as he defines it. Okay. Food was a major issue since the time of Adam and Eve. In fact, we find that it wasn't until after the great flood that the killing of animals for meat was even permitted by the Lord. For sure, the Jewish sages and rabbis have expanded the dietary laws into such complexity that sometimes it's hard to realize that God's rules in the Torah about food were few and basic. But before we get to food per se, let's first talk about holiness and purity and their opposites. Holy is the opposite of common. Just as clean is the opposite of unclean. Common means just what it says. Common has neither special value nor special position. It's typical, it's usual, it's not set apart. And the term applies as one would expect, to the largest group. That is, common means that there is more of it than its opposite. Holy, on the other hand, holds the highest position and it carries the greatest value. Holy means that something is rare. It's unusual. It's set apart. It carries the greatest value. In context with the Bible and the current physical world, holy represents a minority that is set apart for service to God. Very little and precious few are holy. Almost everything is common. Now, therefore, everything that is common is not holy. Something that's holy cannot be common at the same time. Nor can something be clean and unclean at the same time. For instance, Jehovah deemed Israel as being holy and the rest of the world as common. Israel wasn't somewhat common and somewhat holy. In fact, nothing can be that way. Nothing can be a combination of holy and common. Look, this is not a philosophy or an ideal. It's a hard, fast, fundamental axiom that rules the universe. Everything in this current world since the fall of Adam and Eve begins as something common. You, me, plants, animals, dirt, water, everything. In the negative, we could say 
that nothing in this world that is in its natural state is holy. Can something that begins as common become holy? Thank you, Yeshua. Yes, it can. Okay. How does something common, you and me, become holy? We must be sanctified. That is, the creator of the universe must declare us as holy. Once something is sanctified, it's not common anymore. Because it's holy. A common thing doesn't start out with a little bit of holiness and then it gets holier and holier and holier and holier over time. Okay? Or with merit. Things and people are either holy or they're not. Okay? Once a common thing is sanctified and it becomes holy, it leaves its state of commonness behind. Now think on that Torah principle for a second. As believers, you and I are called sanctified, are we not? Okay. The instant we place our trust in Yeshua HaMashiach, God declares us sanctified, the Holy Spirit enters us, and so we shed the common and become the holy. Our Western church way of saying it is that we leave the old self behind and become a new person in Christ. Okay, which is absolutely correct. But that's, this is just a modern Gentile way of re-expressing the ancient Torah concept of the common becoming holy at God's decision. Okay, it's important for us to grasp that just like the Israelites, once Jehovah declares you holy, you're no longer common. I don't care how you view yourself. As a believer, you're 100% holy in his eyes. Non-believers are 100% common. Believe it, trust it, live it. Let's peel this onion back one more layer. Common things can be subdivided into two separate and distinct groups, clean and unclean. Only clean common things are eligible to become sanctified. That is, only common things that are also clean can be elevated to holy. Unclean common things cannot become holy. In Leviticus chapters 11 through 16, we're going to find God's lists of what it is that denotes clean, common things and what denotes unclean, common things. Despite what modern church doctrine might say, the reality is that what constitutes clean and unclean, holy and common, are not defined in the New Testament. For that, we have to turn to the Torah. Now, clean things... can be polluted by contact with unclean things. But unclean things cannot be cleansed just by contact with something clean. It's a one-way street. When something clean comes into contact with something unclean, the result is always that both things are now unclean. 
Now, I'm just giving you biblical principles here, okay? We're learning A, B, C, D, E, F, G right now. Okay. We have a similar condition when dealing with the holy. The result of the holy coming into contact with the common is that the holy becomes defiled. However, it never happens that the common thing that touches holiness is allowed to become holy merely because of contact. That said, certain incidents in the Old Testament show that while it may be theoretically possible for holiness to be transmitted to something common or unclean by simple contact, the Lord interrupts the process by destroying that thing that has dared to touch the holy. Thus, that really makes the whole question moot. This is another of those one-way streets. Now, stay with me. I know this is deep and technical, particularly for Western believers to deal with, because we've never been introduced to these biblical realities. But we should have been a long time ago, when we first came to believe. What I'm trying to show you using mere words is some of the almost indescribable spiritual principles that Jehovah has built into this universe. Everything operates in accordance with these principles. Nothing is exempt. There aren't any exceptions. If we're going to understand even remotely what salvation actually is and why it's so necessary, if we're going to understand how to live in the manner God expects of us, then these are the core principles that we must digest. And I'm sad to say that most Christians will never in our entire church lives encounter an explanation of these principles. But any six or seven year old Jewish child who has gone to a typical Jewish school will know them by heart. Even if they don't fully comprehend all their significance. So let's get back to some more explanation. While everything in this world begins as common... Most things also begin as clean. Clean and common is generally, not entirely, but generally, the current natural state of the fallen world. What we see, therefore, is that on one extreme is the holy, and at the other extreme is the unclean. In between these two lay the common and clean as kind of a middle ground. The middle ground clean can be pulled one way or the other. It can be made holy by means of sanctification. It can be made unclean by means of some kind of defilement. Something holy can never be allowed to come into contact with something unclean. The result is that the holy would be defiled and the unclean thing gets annihilated. That's the biblical law. So here's the easiest rule for you to remember about all I've just described. Common and clean is the natural and beginning state of most things, mankind included. Common and clean things can be elevated into something holy, or common and clean things can be degraded into something unclean. Now we're going to hear in Leviticus a lot of the use of the words 
clean and pure. Okay? They mean the same thing. For all practical purposes, clean and pure are synonyms. Now, with these basic rules of purity to go by, and understanding that these rules underlay the basic fabric of the entire universe as we know it, then we begin to see why there were barriers put up by God between his holy self and common man. Adam and Eve were unique because they were created in a holy state and therefore could have almost unlimited contact with the holy Jehovah. Yet after they rebelled, they were no longer holy, they were now common. As such, they couldn't have contact with his presence. That's why the Lord had to put them outside the Garden of Eden. Okay? His earthly dwelling place. It was far less a matter of punishment upon Adam and Eve and more a matter of protection of God's holiness and frankly, Adam and Eve's lives all right, that a barrier was erected between the Lord and his two human creations. And that is the same state that mankind currently finds himself in on the outside looking in. God's holiness must be protected. God will not allow himself to become defiled. He will protect his holiness at all costs. Only something that is holy can come into contact with a holy God. You see this? Okay. Now here is a second rule that is made most clearly by the Torah and was an effect from the first day of creation. And the rule is simply repeated in the New Testament. The rule is that the only way something common can ever become holy is by means of God's grace. That's it. There's no other route. Okay. The church word for this process or event of the common, uh, of the common becoming holy is sanctification or if it involves a person for the more evangelical among us, it's called being saved. Okay. In the era of Moses... Up to Christ's death, God granted his grace upon those who he called, and whom he called was who? Israel. God granted his grace upon Israel contingent on them obeying the Torah rules and rituals that he ordained. Today, God's grace is available to all men contingent upon them trusting solely in the finished work of Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. This is also called grace because man can't do anything to gain it himself. Okay. But in either era, Moses or Christ's, holiness was granted by means of God's grace. Now look, moderns tend to see the whole end game of salvation is being forgiven and cleansed from our sin. But you know what? That's not really it. The real end game 
is being declared holy so that we can be in the presence of ultimate holiness. That's the real end game. Which is what he's always desired to have for us. Salvation, forgiveness of sins is the means of us becoming holy. Therefore, a man who is born common, all men, and who remains common all his life and dies common, never becomes holy. And therefore, can never throughout all eternity come into the presence of holiness. But a man who is born common is declared holy by God by means of trust in Yeshua, lives his life in a holy state. He dies, therefore, in a holy state, and he remains in the presence of holiness for all eternity. Now, holiness, purity, and cleanness are the fundamental issues that all believers should be concerning ourselves with at all times. The Hebrews of the biblical times were obsessed with purity and cleanness for good reason. Their status of being holy could be lost. Okay. See, the typical Hebrew marched up and down a spiritual ladder with holiness up at the top and uncleanness down at the bottom. And if they broke the law, if they sinned, they disobeyed one of the commandments given to them by Moses, their holiness was put into a state of, state of suspension, so to speak. Okay. Disobedience to Torah commands degraded them down to a common state, if you would, from their former holy state. But even worse, they could commit acts that made them unclean. Let me say that again. Disobedience to most Torah commands brought them to a temporary state of common, but typically clean. Clean and common, but no longer holy. Yet there were other acts they could commit, such as touching a dead body, which not only degraded them to a common state, but made them unclean as well. Unclean and common. So the first thing an unclean person, a, a Hebrew that had been made unclean, had to do was become clean again. Step, step one. They had to get back to kind of a neutral state, which is common and clean. That's the purpose of those ritual purity laws. And remember that part of the process of an unclean person becoming ritually pure again was bathing in a mikvah a ritual bath. Now, once a person who was unclean for whatever reason was made clean again, then they could go to the sacrificial system and perform the appropriate sacrifice to regain their status as holy in the eyes of the Lord. So the ritual purity provisions were for bringing a person from an unclean state back into a clean state the sacrificial system was to bring a person in a clean and common state back into a state of acceptable holiness. An unclean person cannot bring a sacrifice. You have to be clean first. 
Okay? The term used to describe this process of regaining the holy status right, that had been put on hold, if you would, is atonement. Atonement had to be made in the form of a specific animal sacrifice in order to elevate a person who is common and clean back into his state of holiness. And I keep repeating back into a state of holiness because a person who has never been declared holy by God cannot make himself holy simply by performing the purity and atonement rituals. So the typical Hebrew was on this constantly moving elevator. Up and down the holiness scale he went. Is it any wonder that Paul and other Torah-observant Jews who understood and accepted what Christ did for them were so excited to explain it to their Jewish friends? No more up and down the ladder of holiness. No more in Jehovah's presence one day, barred from it the next. Christ's sacrifice of atonement put the believer into a permanent state of holiness, never again to be common. Now, one final comment, and we're going to read chapter 11 of Leviticus together. Of all the great quests undertaken by rabbis and sages and Bible scholars, ancient or recent, Jewish or Gentile, few subjects have been so challenging, I think, as to comprehensively identify the underlying meaning of the term holiness. What exactly does God mean by holiness? What did Moses mean by that term? It is understood by Jew and Christian alike that one attribute of holiness is separateness. That is, something or someone is separated apart from others for service to God. Yet that somehow seems incomplete and inadequate. Leviticus shows us that there is far more involved than that simplistic statement. For instance... What's holiness's nature? How is holiness different from all other possible states? What's the chief characteristic of holiness? Of all the explanations I have come across, the one that best brings it together for me, the one that seems most true to the Word of God, blending the spiritual with the physical, is this. The chief nature of holiness is wholeness. W-H-O-L-E. Wholeness and completeness. Nothing lacking. Without imperfection. After we read Leviticus chapter 11, we're going to take a further look at holiness and more of its characteristics. So open your Bibles. To Leviticus chapter 11. We're going to read it all together. Leviticus chapter 11. Mm-hmm. 
Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, Tell the people of Israel, These are the living creatures, which you may eat from among all the land animals. Any that has a separate hoof, which is completely divided and chews the cud, these animals you may eat. But you're not to eat those that only chew the cud, or only have a separate hoof. For example, the camel, the coney, and the hare are unclean for you, because they chew the cud, but they don't have a separate hoof. While the pig is unclean for you, because, although it has a separate and completely divided hoof, it doesn't chew the cud. You are not to eat meat from these or even touch their carcasses. They're unclean for you. Of all the things that live in the water, you may eat these. Anything in the water that has fins and scales, whether it's in seas or rivers, these you may eat. But everything else in the seas and rivers, without both fins and scales, of all the small water creatures and all the living creatures in the water, it's a detestable thing for you. Yes, these will be detestable for you. You are not to eat their meat, you're not, and you're to even detest their carcasses. Whatever lacks fins and scales in the water is a detestable thing for you. The following creatures of the air are to be detestable for you. They're not to be eaten. They are de a detestable thing. The eagle, the vulture, the osprey, the kite, various kinds of buzzards. The various kinds of ravens, the ostrich, the screech owl, the seagull, the various kinds of hawks, the little owl, the cormorant, the great owl, the horned owl, the pelican, the barn owl, the stork, the various kinds of herons, the hoopoe and the bat. All winged swarming creatures that go on all fours are a detestable thing for you. Except that of all winged swarming creatures that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet, enabling them to jump off the ground. Specifically, of these, you may eat the various kinds of locusts, grasshoppers, katydids, and crickets. But other than that, all winged swarming creatures have four feet, and they are a detestable thing for you. Now, the following will make you unclean. Whoever touches the carcass of them will be unclean until evening. And whoever picks up any part of their carcass is to wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Every animal that has a separate but incompletely divided hoof or that doesn't chew the cud is unclean for you. Anyone who touches them will become unclean. Whatever goes on its paws... Among all animals that go on all fours is unclean for you. Whoever touches its carcass will be unclean until evening. And whoever picks up its carcass is to wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. These are unclean for you. The following are unclean for you among the small creatures that swarm on the ground. The weasel, the mouse, the various kinds of lizards, the gecko, the land crocodile, the skink, the sand lizard and the, and the chameleon. They're unclean, crawling creatures. Whoever touches them when they're dead will be unclean until evening. Anything on which one of them falls when dead will become unclean. A wooden utensil, an article of clothing, leather, sacking, any utensil used for work, it must be put in water, 
and it will be unclean until evening. Then it will be clean. If any one of them falls into a clay pot, whatever is in it will become unclean and you're to break the pot. Any food permitted to be eaten that water from such a vessel gets on will become unclean and any permitted liquid in such a vessel also becomes unclean. Everything on which any carcass part of theirs falls will become unclean, whether an oven or a stove. It's to be broken in pieces. They are unclean and will be unclean for you. Although a spring or a cistern for collecting water remains clean. But anyone who touches one of their carcasses will become unclean. If any carcass part of theirs falls on any kind of seed that's to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed and a carcass part of theirs then falls on it, it's unclean. If an animal of a kind that you are permitted to eat dies, whoever touches its carcass will be unclean until evening. A person who eats meat from its carcass or carries its carcass is to wash his clothes. He will be unclean until evening. Any creature that swarms on the ground is a detestable thing. It's not to be eaten. Whatever moves on its stomach, goes on all fours, or has many legs, all creatures that swarm on the ground, you're not to eat them because these are a detestable thing. You are not to make yourselves detestable with any of these swarming, crawling creatures. Do not make yourselves unclean with them. Do not defile yourselves with them, for I am Adonai your God. Therefore, consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. And do not defile yourselves with any kind of swarming creature that moves along the ground. For I am Adonai, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, you are to be holy because I am holy. Such then is the law concerning animals, flying creatures, all living creatures that move about in the water, all creatures that swarm on the ground, its purpose is to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the creatures that can be eaten and those that may not be eaten. Okay. In verse 1, we find Jehovah speaking, presumably audibly, to both Moses and Aaron. And he tells them that they are to teach Israel what it is that he's about to pronounce to them. And God's first important instruction is that Israel may freely eat living creatures. This is a milestone. But this is the first time that Jehovah was actually giving a list of just which animals could be eaten with his blessing? Oh yeah, men had been eating meat before this time for a long time. But never before had there been limits on the species of animal other than the limit not to eat blood of a living creature. Okay. In the beginning, living creatures, animals, were meant to be a companion for mankind. After the fall, they were to be killed and used strictly for the purpose of sacrificing to Jehovah so that man could atone for his sins with the animal's blood. After the flood, God told Noah 
how an animal was to be properly killed and eaten. But he didn't specify to Noah some animals is acceptable and others as off limits. Listen to Genesis 9.1. God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will be upon every wild animal, every bird in the air, every creature populating the ground, all the fish in the sea. They have all been handed over to you. Every moving thing that lives will be food for you. Just as I gave you green plants before, now I give you everything. Only flesh with its life, which is its blood, you're not to eat. Now in Leviticus 11, the Lord was allowing men to eat living creatures, but only of certain types. Interestingly, sometime after Yeshua comes, again, animals are, will no longer be permitted for food. We find this later on in the Bible. Now, the Hebrew word for living creature is hayah, a very generic term for any type of living creature, but not for plant life. Okay. And the first group of living creatures from which men may kill and eat are in Hebrew behemah. Behemah denotes two characteristics. They're land animals as opposed to sea creatures or animals that fly in the air. Okay? And these are animals that currently are or they can be domesticated like cattle and sheep and goats. Okay? Now we're going to see that Jehovah will show men that they can kill and eat animals that inhabit three different spheres of the earth. That is, three different types of earthly environment. Water, air, and land. Okay. This has a lot of spiritual meaning, which we'll get into a little later. Now, of the Bayamah, the land animals that Israel may freely kill and eat are declared to be clean, therefore. Why are they clean and everything else isn't? Again, we'll go into depth on that matter sometime over the next few weeks. But for now, the primary notion to hang on to is that these animals are clean and all others are not because God chose it like that. Okay. But note this. Until Israel was elected, divided, and separated away from all other nations by the Lord, all people on earth were of the same status in God's eyes. Common. Once God took Israel and set them apart as his chosen people and then redeemed them, suddenly the world became divided into two distinct groups of people with different status. Those who were holy and everybody else. Okay? Or more to the point, Israel and everybody else. The everybody else the Bible calls Gentiles. Now that he has separated Israel out to be holy, he begins to separate animals into clean and unclean. The few suitable for food and sacrifice, the rest not suitable. Now, Jehovah lays down 
a visible means for Israel to discern which of the many kinds of behemoth he approves for use as food. Physical characteristic number one is that an approved behemoth must have a cloven hoof. Physical characteristic number two is that it has to chew the cud. So what's a cloven hoof? Basically, it means the hoof is split such that at some point it separates into two distinctly um, different parts, like two toes. Okay. Many animals like horses have hooves that split at one end, but they don't completely separate front and back to, fo to form two separate pieces. Therefore, horses have uncloven hooves and are deemed unfit to eat. In the biblical way of speaking, they're unclean. Chewing the cud, for you non-farmers or ranchers, is a little bit on the gross side. But for you city slickers, I guess I need to explain it so that the term's well understood. Basically, it means the animal only partially chews up its food, swallows it, and then brings it back up again later when it's a little more convenient to chew on it some more. And technically, animals with this characteristic are called ruminants. Right? Animals whose stomachs consist of multiple department, uh, compartments, usually four. Okay? So chewing the cud is basically a description of how a certain animal's digestive system is designed. Thus far, we have four necessary characteristics for a clean and therefore edible Behama. It has a, it's a land animal. It's a domesticated animal as opposed to a wild animal. It must have a fully cloven hoof and it has to chew the cud. Okay. In verse 4, Yehovah gives some examples of common animals that were typically used for food in that era, but now they were off limits for Israel. And he explains just why they're off limits. The camel for instance, choose the cud, but it doesn't have a cloven hoof. The hyrax choose the cud, but it doesn't have a cloven hoof. Matter of fact, it doesn't have a hoof at all. The hare choose the cud, but it doesn't have hooves, cloven or otherwise. And now perhaps for the best known symbol of animal uncleanness in the Bible, the pig. It indeed does have a cleft hoof, but it doesn't chew the cud. So it's disqualified. Now to be clear, these are not the only unclean animals. They're just illustrations used in the Torah. Okay? Perhaps it's also good for us to learn the Hebrew word that is translated as unclean because we're going to run into it time and time again in the Torah. That word is tameh. Let's be very clear about this term, tame, unclean. It has nothing to do with hygiene. It has nothing to do with where, whether or not it's in, inherently edible by humans. In other words, it's not poisonous. Could you eat it and live? Oh, yeah. Rather, it's a spiritual matter. Because Jehovah has, for his own good reasons, declared by fiat that certain animals are not to be eaten by anyone considered to be one of his people. 
Now, verse 8 gives us another important piece of information. Yehovah instructs that unclean animals may not be eaten and an Israelite cannot even touch the dead carcass of one. Okay. What that means is that if for some reason you stumble over a dead animal or you have to kill one for some purpose, you can't touch it. However, as we're going to find out later in later chapters, that there is no prohibition against touching a live, unclean animal. Where does that sound? Therefore, a hare could be a pet. A camel could be ridden. All right, used for a beast of burden by an Israelite, no problem. You just can't eat one and you can't touch it if it's dead. But you could ride an unclean animal all day long. That's fine. As long as it's alive. All right. Now, verse 9, you don't get very far if they're dead. So, Verse 9 begins to deal with living creatures from the water sphere of planet Earth. Sea creatures. Fresh or salt water. And most, the most visible characteristics of an approved for eating sea creature is that it must have fins and scales. So any sea creature that has both fins and scales is considered clean. Clean. Another important biblical term in Hebrew is tahor. Tameh, unclean, tahor, clean. Now, unclean sea creatures are ones that the Bible calls swarming. The Hebrew being translated swarming is sharats, S-H-A-R-A-T-S, sharats. And it carries with it the idea of crawling as well as swarming. Now, exactly what swarming means is a little bit harder to decipher. It seems to carry with it the idea of randomness. Something that, something that kind of darts around, even if it's in a school. Right? Um, doesn't mean, it's not referring to fishes at school. Okay? The chief characteristic of the unclean sea creature is that rather than swim through the water using fins, it either crawls on the bottom or it slithers about like a snake to get through the water. So, for instance, shellfish are considered tame, unclean. Lobsters and crabs, sorry, are also off limits, as are eels and sea snakes. Now, and, and butter doesn't help. All right? <laughs> It's not a purifying agent, unfortunately. In verse 10, a kind of supercategory of um, unclean animals is introduced. Something to cry, described as shakets. Shakets in Hebrew. S-H-E-K-E-T-S. Shekets is usually translated as detestable or an abomination. Right. And it's something, the idea is something to be avoided at all costs. Now, just as we've seen sin categorized and then sacrificial rituals requiring this hierarchy of animals 
from the least to the most valuable to be used according to the nature and the seriousness of that sin, we see that unclean things also seem to have some kind of classification and hierarchy as well. The term sheketz, detestable and abomination, is reserved in the Bible for describing the most serious category of unclean thing. A good thing to know as we go through the Bible because we can all probably think of a verse or two in which Jehovah calls something an abomination. An abomination is the worst sort of sin or uncleanness in God's eyes. Well, the Torah moves quickly now to creatures that inhabit the air sphere. That is, creatures that fly. And there are several types of creatures that fly. The first category dealt with is the most obvious, birds. Interestingly, in a deviation from previous practice, rather than describe the characteristics of the clean and therefore edible birds, instead the Torah describes the characteristics of the unclean ones with the idea that all the other varieties are to be considered clean and therefore they're approved as a food source. So we get a list of birds that are held shekets, not just unclean, but highly unclean, an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the kite and falcon are named first, followed by a couple of types of owls, pelican, a stork, even a bat. Yeah, I know. Technically a bat's not a bird. But by tradition, Hebrews and Arabs consider bats to be in the bird category. Well, the common attribute of all these birds seems to be that they're either birds of prey, which kill and eat other living creatures, or with vultures they eat carrion. However, please note that the scriptures do not specifically say that the attribute of eating other living creatures is what makes these birds unclean. I mean, certain other birds, like chickens, will eat virtually anything, including rodents. And chickens were not considered unclean. So we need to be a little bit cautious about assigning a reason for this list of unclean birds being unclean, because the Bible doesn't really give us one. Okay. Now, next in verse 20, we get another category of living creatures that resides in the air sphere, flying insects. Now, what in the world are insects doing in a listing of foods that are kosher, all right, or not? All right, well, insects were actually a normal and everyday part of the diet in most societies of this era. And so, Jehovah tells the Israelites which of those insects they could eat. Now, he does so by giving a very broad and sweeping category of insects that are detestable, shakets, and then listing, listing those that are the exceptions to the rule. Those that would be acceptable, clean, tahor. Okay. All insects with wings and that swarm and that have four legs are prohibited except for four kinds of locusts or grasshoppers. What's different about these? They have jointed legs. That is, their little legs were designed to bend and operate with a springing action so they can hop and jump around. Okay. Now, as part of a further discussion of holiness and purity, after we've gone through chapter 11, 
I'm going to delve into the possible reason why this particular characteristic, hopping on all fours, made these insects clean for eating. Okay, ready for a surprise? This pretty much concludes the scriptural commandments as regards kosher foods. That's it. Oh, we're going to get detail, little detail added from time to time outside this chapter, but these 23 verses are pretty much it. Okay. Now, Deuteronomy 14 more or less repeats what we just read. And I point this out because Judaism has evolved these few scriptural laws into an enormous man-made system of dietary rules and regulations complete with ritual hand-washing and the prohibition against eating in the presence of Gentiles who might touch your food and therefore defile it. And later as part of what we're going to discuss at the end of this chapter, we're going to get the famous story of Jesus saying that it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean, it's what comes out of it. And in a couple more weeks, we're going to be better equipped to understand exactly what issue Yeshua was dealing with. That's not the one most people think it is. Now let me preview it by saying that like most things Jesus got into arguments with the Jewish religious leadership over, it revolved around his revulsion of man-made traditions. These things that had become the doctrines of Judaism, but they weren't scripture. Now verse 24 brings into play the concept that we discussed in the previous lesson of the unclean polluting the clean simply by contact. And I remind you, the notion is that when something unclean touches, meaning simple physical contact, something that is clean, the clean thing becomes degraded and itself becomes unclean. Never is the result of something clean touching something unclean that cleanness gets transferred to the unclean, thereby making the unclean clean. The only result of clean contacting unclean is that both things become unclean. It's a one-way street. So beginning in verse 24, we get a list of unclean things that if one comes into contact with one of these, you'll become ritually impure. And there are basically three kinds of contact discussed here. Touching something, carrying something, containing something. In other words, something that goes into a bowl or a pot. Okay. So, from here through about verse 40, we're going to deal with how uncleanness gets transferred from one thing to another thing. Basically, the rule is that whoever touches the carcass of some categories of dead animals will be considered unclean, but only in a very limited way. They are unclean until sundown that day. Why sundown the time limit? Because sundown ends the current day and starts a new one. Remember the Hebrew day starts and ends at sundown. Another part of the rule is that anyone who carries the carcass of one of the prohibited dead animals is also unclean until sundown plus they have the added requirement that they have to wash their garments in water. And the list of animals that are clean and unclean is pretty much the same as the list that applies to kosher eating. Animals without cleft hooves and animals that do not 
chew the cud or unclean when they're dead. Okay, but a new category is now discussed. Animals that have paws, like dogs and cats, to bears. Okay, these are considered unclean, both for eating and for touching when they're dead. Once again, it is okay to touch one of these if they're alive. You can have a pet cat, you can have a pet dog, love on it. When it dies, don't touch it anymore. All right? And the result is the same as if someone touched a dead animal that didn't have a cloven hoof or didn't chew the cud. Now, notice something interesting about the contamination of an unclean dead thing. Okay? It cannot only be transmitted to a person, a living human. Its uncleanness can also be transmitted to inanimate things like clothing. Okay? Now, verse 29 discusses the transmission of uncleanness from a different category of living creatures, those described as swarming, animals that dart about rather haphazardly. And the list includes mice, rats, lizards, even crocodiles, and presumably alligators. Now you can add all those to the list of unclean things that can't be touched after they're dead. Right? Now as with the previous list of unclean things, um, unclean dead things, uh, anyone who touches one contracts uncleanness until the start of the new day, which is the end of the evening. Now, please notice that we're being taught that death in general is unclean. Why is this so? Because death is abnormal. We're not supposed to die. Okay. Mice, birds, fish, we're never supposed to die. Death is a condition that was not present when the world was created. The world became polluted by sin and then things became abnormal. Abnormalities detestable to God. Death is the most abnormal condition that exists. At the end of chapter 11, when we discuss more about purity and holiness... We're going to also talk about what is normal and abnormal and how it has much to do with what Jehovah has declared as clean and unclean. Now, beginning in verse 32, another angle concerning uncleanness is stated. It is that whatever, whatever, an unclean, whatever an unclean creature falls into, that thing becomes unclean. Actually, the English translation kind of obscures the real Hebrew meaning of this sentence. What it says is that whatever an unclean dead creature falls in falls onto becomes unclean. And whatever an undead an unclean dead creature falls into also becomes unclean. Into or onto it both becomes unclean. So if a mouse dies and falls on top of your sandal that's one condition. If a mouse dials and falls into your soup, that's a whole other condition. Uh, now, of course, one has to do with a less serious type of uncleanness, all right, say that of clothing, and the other has to do with a more serious type of uncleanness because it concerns the preparation of food. Now, now that how things become unclean has been presented. 
The next thing that Leviticus 11 is going to discuss is how to remedy the situation. And we'll start that next week.